Welcome to episode 198, Adult Siblings as a Hidden Resource in Therapy, featuring Dr. Karen Gale Lewis. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I am delighted to be spending time today with Dr. Karen Gale Lewis. One of her specializations is understanding the impact that sibling relationships can have on our well-being and therapeutic work, and just how to view siblings as a whole in terms of the space that they take up in our souls and in our rooms and our therapy couches. Thank you so much for joining us, Karen. We're delighted to have you. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. So I would love to hear, how did you get this specialization? Tell us a little bit about your background uh, and how this became something that you focus on. Well, I started 51 years ago as a family therapist before there was, before there were fields, uh, different schools of family therapy. I had a master's in social work, later went on for my doctorate. Um, and what, what became clear to me after maybe five, six years is a man came into my office. I was working, man came into my office. He had been in therapy before several times. He was still depressed. And one of the things that I know, knew and still know that if, um, if something didn't work before, don't do it again. So besides some of us, Probably many of us therapists think, oh, well, it was the other therapist. That's I can do a better job. And I may have thought that, but I also knew I wasn't going to go the same route. So at the end of the session, I said, why don't you bring in someone who knows you well and expected that he would bring in his wife, which he didn't. He brought in his, his brother. Now, I want to be clear. My work with siblings did not start with working with siblings. But I'll explain that in a minute. So he came in with his brother who... His input, his brother's input was fascinating for me, but also for him to understand why he was depressed. And I described this whole thing in, in my book, uh, Sibling Therapy, the ghosts from childhood that haunt your loves, your clients' love and work. So I, I won't go into it here, but, but his, the brother's input was taught me something that I was missing. So that got me thinking about siblings. But then what really happened is I began seeing in my individual clients and in my couples and in the families with young children, I began seeing remnants of issues left over from childhood sibling stuff. So I talk about sibling therapy. There are two ways. One is you meet with siblings, but the, the most the way that it most frequently happens is you're working with whoever your client is and you begin hearing, hmm, I wonder why they're stuck. I wonder this. I wonder that. You begin to hear things that make you, led me anyway, to start saying, do you have any siblings? Tell me about your siblings. What was your relationship with your siblings when you were in your um, early childhood? Uh, preschool years to maybe third grade in those years. What was your relationship with your sibling? And what I found is what what was happening back then was being recreated in their life, in relationships with others, within how they felt about themselves. And out of that grew the concepts that I came up with, with the, the four ghosts, so the four key concepts. So it, it sort of snuck up on me. I wasn't looking to do this. People always say, oh, you must have had a great relationship with your siblings or you had problems with your siblings. That's why you did this. Actually, my siblings were irrelevant to my work with siblings. They're not irrelevant in my life, but uh, they were certainly irrelevant. They had nothing to do with what was happening in my office. So that's how I got there. That's really interesting. And this focus on siblings is not one that we often think of clinically. We think so often of primary attachment figures, we automatically go to caregivers in authority, whoever that may be. And so often the idea of sibling work, I mean, I, I can't think of 
an assessment tool I've seen before that had anything more than maybe one question about it, if at all. That is true. So I would I was going to tell you about this later, but I will tell you now that I think of uh, childhood as the childless sibling relationship as a laboratory for all future love and work relationships and friendship, love, friendship, work. And it's a laboratory because it is the time when you were mentioning most of us as therapists, we think about the hierarchy, parents and kids, if you think about it um, hierarchically. But siblings are on the same hierarchy. And so future relationships, love relationships, work relationships, um, friendships are not hierarchical. They are on the same level. So it is the first time when in those early, early, early years, the first time when you were living with a love person, someone you love, and you have to deal with fighting and how you fight and whether you make up and, or don't make up, how do you compete or save face, um, or do you learn to cooperate or not learn to cooperate? Do you learn to exert your power or not exert your power? Um, and because there's usually a power imbalance, either by age or physical, uh, physical size or something. Um, there's, and children figure out how to do all these things, or they don't figure out how to do it. And that's what's so significant. Um, I mean, I love talking about the power imbalance that, you know, a six-year-old with a 10-year-old is obviously at a disadvantage unless they learn to use things like tattling, manipulation. <laughs> um, when I do trainings, I have these great cartoons that I, I love using. Uh, one of them is a little boy asks his, his brother to, um, will you take me to the, oh, will you play ball with me? And the brother says, no. And he says, well, then I guess I'm going to have to tell mom and dad about what you don't want me to know about. <laughs> and the brother says, okay. And then the little brother says, I had to the audience, I had no idea, but there's always something <laughs> that, so manipulation, tattling, blackmail, there are all kinds of ways that young children manipulate, but also what, how do they fight? Does do they fight cleanly? Do they fight and then make up? Do they fight and never make up? Do they attempt to fight and mom or dad comes in and fixes it for them so they never learn how to? All these things of what they learn and don't learn get recreated, not get repeated in adult relationships because you're now in a peer relationship and what you learned and didn't learn is what you tend to repeat. These are concepts that I think we're accustomed to thinking of with family therapy, but not actually zooming in. And the point you make about it being your first training ground, I think is a really important one. And I smiled when you said about the tattling. As we record this, I have a four-year-old and an eight-year-old. And <laughs> those dynamics are just always so interesting to me. Um, and it really is just fascinating to watch them figure each other out and bounce off of each other. And we didn't ask to be born, you know, like they didn't ask to have a sibling or, you know, it just happened. And so then here is the older child that now has this being that's taking up space in the family that they <laughs> didn't anticipate or ask for. And then you have this younger sibling that comes in and is just like, oh, I guess you're here too. <laughs> um, like, it's just a lot to navigate. And I think that framing is really important to remember how, for many folks, this is the initial opportunity to have peer relationships, including that hierarchy, that acknowledgement of power and differences and um, different skills and aptitudes. Yes, because if you think about it in a love relationship, and let me say a heterosexual to make my point clear, um, stereotypically in our society, the male has a little bit more power, bigger, deeper voice, um, more authority generally in, in society. But if the as a little girl, you learned that it is, there are ways that you can use your power that is uh, workable. 
that you were not helpless, you take a very different stance in the love relationship with a man than you would if he's always right. I must be wrong. Um, and, you know, I want to be clear, though, uh, Beth, that I tend to talk in absolutes only because it's easier. It's so much easier to talk in absolutes. So for the listeners, uh, take what I say and check the fits and check the rest. Okay. <laughs> it is. Um, there's obviously so much here, so much that you've written a book, and there's only so much we can cover in an hour. Four. Four oh, I've, written, I've written 11 books, but four about siblings. Four on siblings. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that correction. Um, she's written four books on siblings. And obviously, there's only so much that we can cover in this particular conversation. Um, these dynamics, I think, are really good examples of how that plays out, as you already named. Like, how do we solve conflict? Does somebody else swoop in and solve it for us? Um, one of the ways I've heard it phrased before is how, how do we raise adults, not raise children? And how does that carry over? And as you gave that example about a hetero relationship and how anybody might be marinated by the dominant society or dominant narrative, when you look at the research of how parents and caregivers respond to even six-month-old babies who were gender-assigned male at birth versus gender-assigned female, they are already are there are already differences in the way that we tend to treat people based on their bids, uh, based on whatever gender was assigned at birth, and. That consideration is obviously going to carry forward, and that's something that I've certainly seen in different dyads as well, of how is the family maintaining these norms around these two people being, let's say, uh, same sexual and gender identity, these siblings, but also um, one is older. So does, you know, there's so many interesting studies, as you know, and I love to talk about them with sibling order and like birth order and personality types and all of this stuff. It's really complicated and fascinating. I want to say that my first book was called Siblings in Therapy, Lifespan and Clinical Issues. It was a, an edited book with Michael Kahn, who did a, co-wrote uh, Sibling Bond um, back in the early 80s. Um, Walter Toman is one of the, he was the originator of birth order theory. I contacted him in Germany uh, to ask him if he would write a chapter for the book. I have to tell you, even though I put that in the book because it's important because people talk about it, to me, birth order theory fits every time it fits. All the times it doesn't fit, it doesn't. And that's really important because um, if you're in a birth order that isn't what you're supposed to be like, then it does something to your self-esteem. I'm the oldest. I'm supposed to be this. In fact, in many families, there's a functional oldest, not the oldest, someone who is functional. So I just need to put that out there. So I, um, Thank you. I appreciate that. And I think that's a really good point to remember that just because we have, regardless even of a theory or studies, just because we have that doesn't mean that it's going to be one size fits all and fits everybody's situation. So Karen, when we're thinking about siblings, you just mentioned um, functional oldest. Can we get into some of the terminology you had mentioned earlier, these four key concepts? Can you speak about those and potentially others as we frame our conversation today to understand how all of these parts kind of fit into how we should be thinking about siblings and how it's affecting our clients real time? Okay. I'm going to preface this by saying that one of the things I was fascinated to learn is that sibling relationships tend to be transgenerational. The style of relationships, when they've been cut off, when they've been closed, when uh, two have been real close and one has been uh, isolated. Um, I've been fortunate enough to work with many, many families uh, or where I've been able to track sibling relationships three generations. I had one family I could track it five generations. That was fascinating. So 
I want to, and it isn't true for everybody. Remember, I talk in absolutes, but it's enough that it struck my attention. So, so what I discovered is that I call these ghosts because they are, well, let me start differently. I'm going to start by saying that we all, those of us who have siblings, know that we have siblings. We have uh, our birth siblings. And I'm only talking about birth siblings now, not step siblings who come in later, um, or even maybe not adopted unless they are adopted right at birth or something. Um, but the, the, our birth siblings are, have our flesh and blood. They age when we age. Um, they are the ones that we have share all their shared memories. But we have another set of siblings. And this other set of siblings are what I call the ghosts. And these are the ones that from childhood stay with us. The memories, the hurts, the resentments, the idealization um, that 20, 30, 70 years later, I've actually worked with, if we have time, I'll tell you about the 90-year-old siblings I work with, um, that these, these, these ghosts, the fro frozen images and crystallized roles, which I'll come explain in a minute, stay pop out. I call them ghosts because they're not there all the time, just like Casper. He's not there all the time. You don't see him, but at any moment they could pop out. So I'm talking with my older brother and who, when he wasn't being wonderful and loving to me, uh, he was really mean. <laughs> you know? He was both. Um, and so we're now in there. Well, it doesn't happen now, but we were in our thirties and or our forties and he would have a look on his face and I would tighten up or he would use a, a facial exp a hand motion or he'll say something and I will tighten up because at that moment it was my ghost of my brother from way back when, when he had that look, when he said something. Now, much of the time in adulthood, he doesn't trigger that in me. But, and that's what's so complicated because it happened all the time. We figure out, okay, we have to work on this, but we don't know when it's coming up, when it's grabbing hold of us. And, and uh, I'd like to think that some of the time when I, years ago, when I would see that look in his face and I would get scared, I would have to tell myself, maybe it's gas pains. Maybe he, <laughs> he's not mad at me. Maybe it's, you know, I'm reading into my frozen image of what he was like back then. So the first of the ghosts is frozen images. They can be idealized or uh, negative. Idealized can be just as harmful because if you idolize your sibling, then in adulthood, you will, you may be, keep idolizing them, which means you're not really seeing your sibling as he or she really is, um, which is not fair to your sibling. So that's the first of the ghosts. Okay, so there's frozen image, there's crystallized roles, there's unhealthy loyalty, and sibling transference. Okay, so this was the un, this was the frozen image. They're either negative or positive. Um, crystallized roles in there's nothing wrong with roles. Fam, parents generally assign roles to kids. They don't know they're doing this, but you know, there's the funny one, the cute one, the athlete, the troublemaker, the the um, comic. You know, I'm, sometimes I have, um, when I'm doing trainings, I have people list off up to 100 different kinds of labels, roles that have been given to uh, kids. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem comes when it gets crystallized or rigid so that if the, the, the smart one doesn't always maybe – want to feel smart or doesn't may not feel may not feel smart but has to live up to that or the funny one the troublemaker it gets locked into crystallized locked into a role and I have to be the troublemaker because that's my identity so parents end up inadvertently assigning these roles um, so that's bad enough in childhood most of the time many times I don't know most some of the time, uh, when people um, grow up, they leave those roles behind. Sometimes they don't. But whether they do leave them behind or not, the sibling has a frozen image of the sibling with that crystallized role. One of the cute cartoons that I uh, use for a crystallized role is 
a little boy is and his older brother are lying in bed just before Christmas, the night before. And the little boy gets up and sits up in his bed. His mom comes in to kiss him goodnight. And he says, oh, mommy, I'm so sad. Santa's not going to leave me any presents because I've not been good. And he goes on and on. And mom says, darling, uh, don't worry. Santa's going to take care of you. You're going to get everything you asked for. She kisses him goodnight. And he goes, she leaves the room. The young, the older brother sits up and says, you really pulled that cute little cute boy just uh, routine really great, don't you? Something like that. It's a funny little cartoon, but it's how siblings then see the roles assigned, pick up on the roles assigned, and then carry it often into adulthood. Um, my older brother that I like to pick on and talk about, I get back at him <laughs> for this. Um, he called me the baby and little Blanche. Our mother's name was Blanche. He's going to call me the baby or little Blanche for years because I was, my role was the little girl, the cute little girl, the baby. Um, it took years for me to have to work him out of that because that's how he saw me. So crystallized roles show up. They get started in the childhood, but they show up in adulthood and two sisters or brothers and siblings are talking to each other or they go home for holiday for and suddenly they are screaming at each other and back to as i hear so often it's just like when we were 10 years old kinds of comments um that's that is the combination the frozen image and the crystallized rolls okay can i move on to the third of the ghosts because this is the most the most difficult one to see. And yet it is, for therapists, it is the most important one to see and to understand. I call it unhealthy loyalty. So let me start with loyalty. There's nothing wrong with loyalty. Families, it's wonderful. They pass on family values, religious values, social justice, um, um, be kind to people, whatever. There are a lot of nice values. Sunday, we all have Sunday lunch together, whatever. Nothing wrong with loyalty. The problem comes when it's unhealthy loyalty. And unhealthy loyalty shows up in adulthood only. Or it, only it, it shows up in adulthood. Um, when, let's say, there, and I'm going to, I tend to use examples of only two siblings again because it's easier. If you're talking about three and four, I've actually worked with 10 siblings at a time. Um, it's too hard to, to talk about them with so it's many. It's very complicated. Yeah. Yes. So I'm just going to use two examples. So we have, a, let's say, a, um, an older sister and, and a younger brother, and the older sister is the, um, the smart one. And the younger brother is the funny one. Okay. The, and that's what they've been assigned. That sort of fits their personalities most of the time. And then they keep on fitting it. Move them 20, 30, 50 years ahead. Um, but it usually shows up long before 50 years uh, into early adulthood uh, and middle age when, let's say, the smart one, the older sister, is having a hard time at work. Things are not going quite so well with her. And the younger one, the brother who was the comic, who was sort of the cute one, he has a chance for a promotion that is going to take him, um, so he's making much more than his sister, and he will get much more status. Unhealthy loyalty comes when he would say unconsciously, that's what makes it so hard. He unconsciously he says, I'm not supposed to be the smart one. She is. I can't accept this. I'll have to not accept the promotion. I'll self-sabotage. As I say, it's not a conscious thought. It's just what happens. The, so he holds himself back so that she stays the, um, the smart one. Now, unhealthy loyalty can work in reverse. Keep the same older sister and the younger brother. Uh, she can say... You know, I want to give my younger brother, unconsciously, give my younger brother a chance because he's starting out this new business. I want to give him a chance so he can really succeed. So I will hold myself back so he can succeed. It is, I don't know a percentage, but it shows up so often. I'm always looking for it. 
and often. And it's there, not because I'm looking for it, but I am looking for it. And so often it is there as to trying to remain loyal to those frozen images, to those crystallized roles. I love my sibling. I will hold myself back. So it sounds like when we're looking at unhealthy loyalty, it's when we are engaging knowingly or likely, I'm guessing unknowingly, in behaviors that are maintaining the crystallized roles, holding the frozen image. And, And want to rebalance. It's not fair that my sibling, whatever, so I will, out of loyalty to my sibling, I will hold myself back. Yes. I'm sorry, I cut you off, but I wanted to add that piece. These are interesting concepts. And as you're talking about it, I'm thinking about different family therapy models too. Thinking about the roles. And I know you have four key concepts, so I'd love to hear the last one. And then also to talk about this uh, in relation to these models that many of us have been trained in over the years. So when we look at this through a systems model or through a structural model, like what does this look like? Because my guess is that they're really shared concepts with different language Mm -hmm. and that that translation, particularly for folks who are not as accustomed to looking at it as really sibling specific, but more like family to kind of zoom in on this particular relationship, I think is really clarifying. Exactly. So ask me, and I'll go to the fourth one, but ask me about that, about whether you have to be a family therapist or if you're not a family therapist, because that's really important. Um, so, but let me move on to the, to the fourth concept, um, which goes to its sibling transference, which goes to um, adulthood now. So each of these, the, the issues started from way back. So but it gets, it shows up in adult relationships, in, in their own adult relationship with each other or with other people. Um, so sibling transference, somebody partners with someone. I, I actually talk about this as, did you marry your sibling? We marry someone where it's familiar. Um, usually, as therapists, we've always been looking, of course, to parents. Oh, you married your mom, you married your dad. Yeah, that may be, but mom and dad are different hierarchies for structural family therapists, the nutrient uh, therapists, trained therapists. Um, there is this hierarchy. Siblings are, as I said earlier, on the same hierarchy. And so you marry someone you bring to your marriage or love relationship with, or, uh, well, let me stay with love relationship. It doesn't, with or without marriage. Um, you bring, as I said earlier, all of what you learned and didn't learn. But in addition to that, those frozen images get transferred onto a spouse or a loved person. Um, the idealized one, I give examples in my book of a of, of woman with an idealized image of, of her brother and what happened uh, years later in her marriage and then at work because you have the same issues of transferring to a love relationship to work relationships, getting triggered by those ghosts from childhood. Whether you you see in this other person a love relationship or a work relationship or friendship, you see in that person at any moment it can happen. You get triggered to see your brother or your sister in either positive or negative. So. Um, let me talk about work because this is, is it's so easy to see it here. If your older sibling was really mean to you, bossy and mean and a know-it-all, more specific, criticized you all the time, put you down. Okay, Now you're at work. Your employer, your coworker, doesn't matter, uh, is criticizing you, put you down all the time. That's what it feels like. But you stay. Somebody else in that same office either doesn't experience that person as criticizing because they don't have that same sibling transference or they do experience it and say, I'm out of here. I'm either going to report the person to HR or I'm going to quit. I'm not going to stay, but you don't leave your siblings. So you, someone who has been put down by a sibling 
stays in a work situation and continues to put up with it and feel miserable and complain about it, whatever, but stays because it's familiar. That was going to be one of my questions when we're looking at that fourth concept. Um, Does it swing the other way? So that if it's not just, as you said, um, partnering, having significant intimate relationships with your sibling, um, knowing that I don't mean that literally, um, but that it could also potentially swing the other way of this person while familiar may also carry traits that are repulsive to me because it reminds me of somebody um, that when I talk to clients about it, not necessarily even relating to siblings, but what I call just pulling up from the well, that it's like there's some um, imprinting, if you will, from past experience that's saying there is a red flag here, something about this feels really uncomfortable and I can't quite put my finger on it, but I just, I need to steer clear that it, that, that knife cuts both ways. And that's really important to be able to do that. But it is often somebody else doesn't experience it the same way. Yeah. That's because same. we're projecting our yeah. conditioning onto that person exactly. or that situation. Yeah. Um, and, and it goes to friendships um, that you can take toxicity to a friendship. Um, they're back in the 80s, I think, or 90s. problem with <laughs> having practiced so long, a lot of, <laughs> of stuff I referred to was back in the 80s and 70s and 90s, as early as the 90s. Um, the, uh, there is a, uh, in, some information started coming out about toxic friends. Um, uh, Florence Isaacs, I think, wrote the first one of the first books on toxic, um, I think it was called Toxic Friends, and she interviewed me for that. Um, and then there were magazine articles, and then there were uh, surveys about how many people have toxic friends. Well, it was amazing, whatever the percentage was. It was you know, over 60 70% of people have, have friendships that still has some toxicity. Why do you stay friends? Well, we're good friends, but she's mean to you. She ignores you. She disappoints you. She, it's familiar. It's the sibling transference. Really interesting. I think the key terms that you're introducing are helpful to just understand kind of the framework of what's happening and then how we're talking to clients about it. I know I've had that experience of saying to a client, like, as you're talking about this, I can hear that somewhere there is something lurking from a past experience and maybe we haven't talked about it or some memory that's coming back. What or who does this remind you of? And it has certainly happened where, and I might get it wrong. I might say like, ah, is that like your parent, you know, or is that like your coach or whatever else? And it's totally happened where it's been like, no, that's like my sister. Exactly. <laughs> like, oh, there we are. <laughs> yes. But often, and that's wonderful that you hear that because often they'll go back and say, oh yeah, it's my um, high school. Um, it's my first boss. I mean, it's somebody in their adult life. We'll go back further. Go back further. Yeah. And that's what we, and the way you say you can feel it, that you're absolutely right about that. You can feel it, but if you don't, if you're not lucky enough to be able to feel it as you can, you can look for it. <sighs> um, there are questions that I, um, where then I have some questions here that I, um, I often will be asking, um, have you ever felt like this before? the same way you feel now about your spouse, did you ever feel that way about your sibling? Or how is your sibling's marriage or their work work life? Um, or um, what would your sibling do? And of course, I'd have to say, first say, do you have siblings? Um, what would your sibling do in this same situation? So being keeping in mind that for us as therapists to keep in mind there may be a sibling issue. Rule it out, if nothing else. Ask about siblings and find out it has nothing to do with siblings. Okay, then go on. Most of the time, I don't know what a percentage, but most of the time, you'll find that actually does have it. But if it doesn't, that's okay. 
you just ruled out it's not siblings. It's, we'll have to find something. And what else is going on here? <laughs> we need to look elsewhere. Um, when it comes to framing this through the lens of the well-known models, you already mentioned structural family therapy. You've talked about the hierarchy and if we're pulling from that model, the idea that they're, oh goodness, trying to think if I can remember the certain terms associated with that model, Um, but that essentially there shouldn't be too much crosstalk between hierarchies. That if, if the caregivers, if there are multiple caregivers on one level, that things get problematic when you drop from one level down to a level where it's like, oh, we're best friends, you know, but I'm also your parent and I can take away your car and your allowance and all of that stuff. Right. And that that's where things get confusing. So if we're focusing just on the sibling level within that hierarchy, Can you talk about how this fits into other models outside of structural, just to kind of conceptualize it? Because there's, goodness knows, there are so many models, more keep getting introduced. There's no way you could possibly cover all of them. Um, But to kind of pull from some of the mainstream models that we're seeing taught in programs today or in the last 20, 30, 40 years, what are the most important ones and how does it really link up with what we're talking about with siblings? So what I've, what I've found that, and thank you for asking me that question, um, because what I found is that regardless what you're training, it doesn't matter. Whether you have a systems uh, background, whether you have a behavioral background, um, now, if you have cognitive behavioral and you, you don't want to understand anything other than what are you going to do about this, but if that doesn't work, sometimes you have to go back uh, and find out what and you can use the concepts then to help them figure out what what it is about the sibling that maybe is holding them up and then move on. So how are we going to move past this? So the theoretical framework that you were trained by should not have anything to do with whether this, these ideas can fit in or not, those who have siblings are going to be carrying their ghosts. Whether you, we like it or not, we carry our ghosts. Um, so talking in terms of individual work, not sibling work, knowing that for the purpose of our conversation today, we have not mentioned the abusive aspects of this. We have not talked about physical, verbal abuse, incest, things like that. Um, When we are looking at relationships, we'll say that don't fit into that category of abusive, perhaps fit into the category of unhealthy, if you will. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Unsustainable. Um, How do you work with an individual? So you're assessing them and you're trying to sniff out whether or not there are ghosts floating around and how they're presenting and let's say that there are, do you ever, well, it sounds like you have brought in, clin- in uh, siblings before, but do you feel like this is a conversation that, that may need to happen with the sibling, either you as a clinician or the client with the sibling, or for all intents and purposes, is it largely irrelevant because it's really about this person's perception and projection? It is much easier with the sibling. Um, if the person um, is willing to do this, there was a uh, one of the examples I when I trained. I love talking about Robert, uh, who was always he he's an architect. He had great ideas, but he was never he worked in a firm. But he was never he, he said I, I feel like there's a wall inside. I, I can only go with so far, and I can't really break out. And you know what does that have to do with anything? Um, so I said, do you have a sibling? And he says, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> and I said, I don't know, but do you have a sibling? He said, yeah. I said, tell me about your sibling. So he told me about his sister. And what do you know about her? Um, well, I don't know much. We, we're not in contact very much now. What were you like way back when in those um, preschool and elementary school uh, up to third grade years? Well, we were real close back then, but... We, you know, by the time we were in high school, we went different ways and we haven't had any much to do with each other ever since. And he's, he's in his forties. 
when he kept talking about this wall and you couldn't break through it, I said, what do you think about bringing your sister in? Who She lived across the country. You may have heard his response when I asked that because it was so, his what was so loud. I mean, the wall shook. Um, but he said, why in the world would I do that? I never don't have know anything about her and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, you have this wall and we haven't been able to figure it out. She may be able to help. She may have some input. She may have some insight. Now, that in itself, it could have been she would come and she would, which she did come, she would come and she would have his insight and she would remind him of things that would help him that he didn't know about or what was going on in the family before, you know, when he was at school, something else happened or whatever. That kind of input from siblings is incredibly helpful. I, um, I say sometimes I bring the sibling in as a consultant. What happened with Robert was probably more common, although it was very complicated. Um, she came. I asked why she would come. And she said, well, he's my brother. He asked me. Um, and what they were talking about became very clear that father had said in father's effort. Remember, I said sibling issues are transgenerational. Father's effort, father had said, my brother was the smart one and I wasn't, and I don't want that to happen with you two. So I'm going to make sure. Uh, so don't worry if you're not smart, basically, he said to the younger one, to the Robert was the younger one. Well, it got convoluted for the two of them because he then said he had to stop being, oh, he was in college and he was making straight A's and he said, whoops, I'm not supposed to be the smart one. So he stopped. He figured this out later. Much later. He figured this out in the, in the meeting with the sister. He never knew why he was making straight A's and then stopped. She had the same thing. And when did his wall start? The year that she got, she was getting all A's and one year she got a B. This may be a little complicated, but it was so real for them. Each of them were listening to father's message and wanting, doing an unhealthy loyalty. She wanted to hold herself back so she got the B. He saw her she, that she got the B, so he held his A's back. And his walls started, what he figured out in that session, oh my goodness, my walls started the year you got the B and I stopped getting A's, all because father was trying to prevent another generation of one sibling feeling left out or because not as smart as the other. Is that too complicated an example to use? There are lots of simpler ones, but that's the one that just... What I'm pulling out from it is recognition of the pattern that for many clinicians, therapy if appropriate for that client and valuable is about insight and that that insight in that client's case really helped him recognize where that pattern was coming from, where it originated. And then obviously our hope is what do we do about that pattern moving forward? Um, but to break it down in that way, we don't often think about siblings as collateral. As you've said, we think about, um, someone's romantic partner or a, a authority figure of one kind or another, even if they're not a caregiver. So I think just that idea of, you know, assuming that these are healthy enough relationships to not fit into an abuse category, that the potential inclusion of that sibling could actually lend a lot of information because there has been so much water under that bridge. So with this in mind and the way that we may be searching for insight to help someone understand why they do what they do, how can different therapists with different theoretical models make this atheoretical? How can we use it when we're coming at it from different perspectives? Kent has, um, Kent may because he is in his thirties and hadn't had a long-term relationship and his most recent one just a couple months ended and he wasn't sure what was wrong. And so I said, when I heard that, I immediately said, do you have siblings? And he said, yeah, well, does that have to do anything? Yeah, but just tell me, do you have siblings? He had a sister, Jane, uh, what's she like? Oh, and he goes on to tell me that she is a comic and she's very funny. And he's telling me all of how funny she is. 
And I comment, well, you're pretty funny as you're telling me this. No, I'm not. He raises his voice. I'm not funny. She's the comic. He was able then to look at how insistent he was that he could not be the funny one because that was hers. So now what are we going to do about that? And then we could do a very structural thing of one of the things I did do is have him go back and talk to his sister, but uh, you may not, uh, behavioral therapists may not do that, but say, okay, but what are some of the things that you like that Jane does that you could be doing when you were out on these dates? Because one of the things became clear to him is he was saying, I'm shy. Well, are you, are you really shy or are you, you don't sound shy when you talk to me about Jane. Oh, well, that's because she. So, so are there any things from her that you could use? What are some of the things she does that works? And let's take a look at what you could be doing on your next date. So that may not be a perfect example because I'm not a behavioral therapist. So, I'm, um, But that's the kind of thing that someone could be doing. Find out about the sibling issue and then translate it into what are the, the steps you want your client to be taking to use what he, he or she has learned. Um, I will tell you that Kent um, had a great time with his sister. They started laughing and telling jokes all together, and his sister was thrilled to finally have someone else in the family who was funny besides her. And he came back and said, I wonder if this is why maybe I'm not shy. Maybe I've just always held myself back. I didn't say that. I would have, but I didn't have to because he said it first. Few months later, he was in a very different kind of relationship. I think part of the value in what you're talking about too is simply the acknowledgement of how significant an impact these early action, early interactions can have on how we interact with the world around us. Like your example about what we're doing in the workplace, I think is a really valuable one. And goodness knows, we probably all had the experience of witnessing. Um, sibling conflicts, and then how does a caregiver or authority there address it? What is the quote-unquote right way? And then that's highly um, based on that situation and those people and the culture and all these other things. But just simply the acknowledgement of like with a client of, whoa, 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 back up. Can you tell me more about that? You know, I I heard how when you were talking about that sibling, there was, you, you used a lot of superlatives. Um, it sounds like that's a really big pedestal. Can you tell me more about that? Um, and just, I think that acknowledgement of how significant the relationship can be, could be just therapeutically valuable to open up that resource of just kind of accepting that this could be really influential to what's happening in this person's world. Let's make sure that it is or isn't and how we're going to use that information. Exactly. And you were saying you uh, that was I can't remember your exact words about the superlative the, the things you were saying about a sibling, but when you hear one of your clients is talking about a friend or a lover, you ask about a sibling, and you will notice often they use the same words in describing the sibling that they use in describing the sibling that they had been describing to their friend or their colleague at work or their, their love, love person. Um, so the concept of sibling therapy is not, you have to have siblings, I'm just restating this, just to um, underscore, because people say, oh, I don't, you know, I don't work with siblings. You always work with siblings. If, if you're just not necessarily sibling, there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There's a, there was a cartoon in the New Yorker maybe 60 years ago. <laughs> Um, it was a really cute cartoon. There's a man and woman in bed, and and over the bed is the family portrait of grandparents and aunts and uncles and everybody with the eyes down on the on the couple in bed. You have all those people, particularly the siblings, are always in. If there are siblings, they're always in the potential that they are always in your client's life. As a ghost, you don't know them, you don't see them, you don't know it has anything to do with siblings, but the frozen image and the crystallized roles from childhood get transferred onto other people some of the time, not all the time. 
which is what makes it so hard to see. In family systems, these roles can sometimes be so hard and fast that it may not be feasible or emotionally safe for a client to have the conversation with a sibling to say, Hey, you know, when I was a kid, you always used to talk over me. And now I am having trouble at work because I don't want to say anything. (laughs) Um, Can we talk about that? Maybe that is not the, the way to do that. Do you find yourself doing empty chair technique, for example, to bring the sibling into the room without literally bringing a sibling into the room. Yes. I, I will tell you about that in a second. But I also say I would want to might be asking that client, have you ever wondered why your older sibling talked over you? What was going on for, for your sibling that, that he or she was doing that? As a way of trying to get some empathy, why was the sibling like that? You know, siblings are born to be in conflict with each other. Um, I never blame parents. Let me be clear. I never blame parents. I explain parents. And parents, kids don't come with instruction books, as everyone knows. Um, Parents do the best they can knowing where they came from. But parents, chances are in that example you just used, the older brother, there was a reason why he was talking over Either he was ignored by his parents or he was role modeling. They role modeled that for him or whatever. He may have, so he may have been unhappy. But back to your question, if I don't bring them in, absolutely. I do, you know, um, sculpting. Um, people who remember uh, that with the sculpting. Um, I use a lot of imagery of the empty chair. I use a lot of nonverbal uh, and verbal activity to help get to what may be going on on another level that they're not really clear about. I might have, you mentioned a chair. So one example, I'd have to have your good brother and your bad brother, two different chairs and talk to the good brother first, that all the things you liked about him. If you really don't like him, I'll start with the bad brother. Talk about all the things you don't like about your bad brother. Talk, talk to him about the things you don't like. Is there anything else you want to then talk? Because because I I am a family therapist. Everybody's in the room, like that picture I was telling you. Everybody's in the room for me, not just the siblings, but we're focusing now on the siblings. Um, so using two chairs to help look at, or I might have the my client sit in one of the chairs of the brother and talk about why why try to what it was like being having, what was like being mean to you? Why did you always talk over me? Okay, so the older, the client would sit in that chair and say, well, I talked over you, I don't know, because, and the client would probably have a hard time, but you, that's what therapy is. You help them uh, get to, so what might it be? It's a way of expanding empathy uh, for the sibling, and at the same time, if you don't have to see your sibling as the evil one, if you can understand why he or she was doing what he did, it can free you up in your own relationships, whether you ever talk to your sibling about it or not. It's been a long time since I've talked about empty chairing gestalt, and <laughs> I, I appreciate our discussion on it just because these are pretty tried and true interventions that can lend so much clarity, both for the clinician and for the client. Um, And I appreciate what you said too, about the development of empathy. And I know I've had those conversations about like, gosh, you know, why, why do you think that that person cut you off so much? Or why is it that, that they stole your idea Um, in trying to understand the dynamics because there is so much overlap between these different models. So what are our automatic negative thoughts, for example, (laughs) like what narrative, what is the story I'm telling myself? Um, uh, Acceptance and commitment therapy. I'm noticing that I'm telling myself the reason they're cutting me off in this meeting is because they don't like me or they don't value me. Um, All of these different models are kind of telling us a different way to do it. But fundamentally what we're talking about is an increase in understanding and insight to hopefully facilitate more health and life satisfaction moving forward. Absolutely. 
And and when I do trainings, I say that you, what you're doing is fine. The work that you're doing, I'm sure you're probably a good therapist. You don't have to do this, but it's one more way to think about the therapy that you do that often is quicker. Um, and not necessarily the therapy is quicker, although sometimes, but you get to the underlying issues quicker or you get to, so what are we going to do about that a lot quicker? Mm, okay. So for the purposes of our conversation today, we've talked about kind of these keys concepts and the amuse-bouche, if you will, of the taste of looking at things through the lens of the sibling relationship or relationships for listeners who are tuning in and thinking to themselves, oh, there's a lot there. I want to dive in more to this. What's the best way for them to do that? What guidance do you give them? What resources do you feel like are most valuable? Well, can I promote my new book? (laughs) That is a resource that I'm sure you are are training from as we speak. (laughs) It's called Sibling Therapy. The Ghosts from Childhood That Haunt Your Clients' Love and Work. Um, it is actually filled with lots of information. It's also not really long because I'm ADHD and I have learning, reading disabilities, so I can't write very long anyway. Um, and I have at the end, I have, I think, 14 case examples in, in addition that take a specific sibling issue, a specific clinical issue, and look at how it what happens uh, from the sibling perspective. Um, I also include in it um, some failures um, because I think it's important we can learn from our failures. And I include uh, some of the things that I think are, are particularly important skills. Not everybody probably could do this work. I do end up doing sibling retreats. I meet with whole families of siblings uh, for weekends at a time. Um, not everybody can do that, but everybody can at least leave the option open to look for, is there a sibling issue that might be a, um, a different way of going about helping this client, especially for clients who've been in therapy before. The last thing you want to do is do what they've done, they've done and has not worked. Through the lens of these different models, you had said earlier in the conversation when I had mentioned birth order, like it's applicable when it's applicable. It's not when it's not. Has there been, in your opinion, enough research about these sibling dynamics? Or is this really an emerging focus of the psychological field? I'm so glad you asked that. And the answer is, I can't tell you anything about. The the answer is, what I have done with working with older siblings is to ask them what it feels like to, to have been bossy. Why were they bossy? All the research talks about bossy, for instance, um, controlling bossy. But none of the research says, ask them, why? What was it like for you? How did that happen? Were there times you didn't want to be? Um, and that's what's missing from the research. There's, it says, here's what it is to be on these different birth positions, but there isn't Let's take a look at what it what it means. What did the person really was that? How did you end up being bossy? Where you end up bossy because mom and dad said, or mom, a single parent, and mom said, I have to work, and you have to make sure everybody does their homework when you come home. And if you don't, I'm going to beat you up, you know, um, or I'll I'll say that you're not doing a good job. Or so um, I have a whole section in uh, one of the chapters on the older sibling, the bossy older sibling, and on the youngest sibling, the sense of abandonment. We haven't even talked about that. That's another whole issue that gets sibling transferred um, in all kinds of ways, the sense of abandonment that developmentally happens. You know, older siblings leave before the, before they, so they're always abandoning the younger ones. And if they're close in the early years, it's really painful. There are so many concepts here. Thank you for joining us. Again, this is Dr. Karen Gale Lewis talking about sibling relationships as a potential resource for us as clinicians that maybe we haven't explored before. Um, 
Dr. Lewis, what's the best way for folks to visit you? What's your website uh, if they want to learn more specifically about your work? Okay, my website is Dr. Karen Gail Lewis, and Gail is G-A-I-L. All three names could be spelled differently, but they're all the traditional spellings. So drkarengaylewis.com. Fantastic. Thank you again for joining us, Karen. It's really been an enlightening hour. And as we've said, there's just so much here. And I think that you've helped lend some more knowledge to this potentially untapped resource for our clients. I appreciate it. Thank you, Beth. I appreciate this. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.